We're in Luke, and we're starting this series today, and I'm excited. I hope you're excited. We will walk through this book, um, Lord willing, for the next six months or so, we will be here. And so, uh, <laughs> so put on your seatbelts, and let's start this journey together. We will read the first four verses of chapter one. And the reason why we stand for the reading of God's word is because this is God's word. And this word is our authority. This word is sufficient. This word can transform us from the inside out. And so we stand in reverence of God's word. And Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote in verse one. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some, times, for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty. Everybody say that with me. Certainty, certainty. concerning the things you have been taught. This is God's word and glory be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, this opportunity to just take some time and consider what you inspired your servant Luke to write. And God, I pray that through our time together over uh, the next several months that we would grow and that we would see Jesus clearly and that would empower us, motivate us, encourage us to follow him fully. So accomplish that, oh God, in our midst uh, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. I came across an article that really grabbed my attention in light of not only uh, this topic here in Luke, but the women's conference uh, or the women's event, which is rooted in Nancy DeMoss's book entitled Lies Women Believe. And even our uh, sending church, Christ Community Chapel, who's taken a year and emphasizing uh, the need to, to listen to God and in light of so many voices and in light of so much going on that we just need to focus and hear the Lord. Again, this article grabbed my attention by the Time magazine that highlighted that there is a crisis or there was a crisis in 2018 of fake news. It was spreading. It was hard for people to discern. And it wasn't something that was just discriminating against young people or older people. Everybody were experiencing the issue of fake news and how to decipher between misinformation and real information. They literally called this a crisis. And so as I looked into this article and and dived into it a little bit, I, I thought that it was interesting. And that gave this big idea that people in that time, and we can only imagine now after COVID, people can be very vulnerable to misinformation. 
and, and we could humble ourselves and realize that we, come on now, somebody, we could be subjected to misinformation. We are vulnerable to misinformation. And this article talked, this article gave a few reasons why people may be vulnerable to misinformation. Let me set that before you. One reason why they said people are vulnerable to misinformation is because the willingness to take cognitive shortcuts. You catch that? Cognitive shortcuts. And so you could be reading something and it could present some information. And instead of researching it and doing the hard work of really finding out if this is true, you just take it at face value. So that's one way in which we could be vulnerable to misinformation. The second way in which they talk about we can be uh, vulnerable to misinformation is that we want to have social validation to fit in with the masses. So you see some news, you hear some news. This is the way that everyone is taken. And so I'm going to believe that because the masses believe it. So that's another way in which we could be vulnerable to misinformation. A third way they list is by us being uh, driven by our impulses. And so if an article or if there's information that touches your heartstring, right? Come on, somebody. There's something that you feel passionate about. You would affirm it, whether it's true or not. And so the article offers some suggestions on how we come against this crisis of fake news. And they talked about our responsibility of being critical thinkers. Now, understanding that we could be vulnerable to misinformation, we want to take a step back and realize that there is an area, there's a body of, of truth, or there's a topic in which we want to have absolutely certainty about. And that is our relationship with God. Our relationship with God is not a place where we want to leave it up to a, a chance of misinformation. Our relationship with God and our relationship to the Christian faith is one in which we need absolute certainty. Is Christianity real? Is Jesus real? Did Jesus really die for sinners? Is this real or is this story all made up? Like this is a this is an issue. I would say this is the supreme issue where we absolutely need to have certainty. Christianity actually makes the argument that if you reject Jesus, your eternity could be spent in eternal anguish. Or if you accept Jesus and turn from your sin and turn from yourself and believe in him, your eternity can be spent in eternal joy with God. Christianity lays out two paths for eternity and Forget about checking your watch. Eternity is a long time. Come on, somebody. And so if, if this is the matter, if this are some of the issues in which Christianity sets forth, we need to be absolutely certain about Plus, the return to the gospel of Luke. Because Luke, in setting out, in writing his gospel, he set out to give us the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Matter of fact, if there was a main idea, if there was a thought that I didn't want you to leave here without, it would be this. Luke, check the facts about Jesus. 
and offers a gospel for our clarity and our certainty. Let me say that again. Luke, check the facts about Jesus and God's work through him. And he offers us a gospel for our clarity and our certainty. That's why Luke is writing. And as we go through this book, I'm praying that the spirit will open our eyes and we will see what Luke is writing. And in many ways, we will see Jesus clearly and that will help us to follow him fully. So Luke can help us accomplish even our mission as a local church as we go through it. Um, I just want to state this in a different way. And um, I want to spend some time here. Luke was not innovative. You catch that? He was not seeking to bring forth some novelty. Luke was researching. He checked the details. He compiled the information and he clarified it. And that's what you have in the gospel of Luke. In many ways, this writer was meticulous in his approach. He didn't he didn't invent the details. He diligently compiled them together. Why did Luke write his gospel, this gospel? How did he order this gospel? And what should be our posture as we go through it? It is at this point that I want to give credit to Tabidi Adewitley for his commentary helped me tremendously, even in forming this outline. Let's make a quick pastoral note. We, we typically talk about the gospel of Luke or the gospel of John or the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Matthew. The correct terminology, and even I've misused it this, uh, this evening, is the gospel according to Luke, the gospel according to Matthew. Why is that important? Because all four writers of the gospel narrative are putting forth the same story of Jesus, just from different perspectives. Matthew was actually a disciple of Jesus, and he was there. Mark was a friend of Peter and got a lot of his information from Peter, the apostle of Jesus. Luke, on the other hand, as we will see, compiled all of the evidence and put together a gospel. John was a eyewitness. He was a disciple of Jesus. And so all four writers put forth the story of Jesus. You hear me? They put forth the story of Jesus, but they put forth it and through their unique personality and through their unique way. And so I just wanted to make that quick note for you all. This is the gospel according to Luke. All right. Why did Luke write it? It's the first question. Why did Luke write this gospel? Well, we get some clarity here very early on that he wanted to give Theophilus, whose name's literally means a lover of God, the most excellent Theophilus. He wanted to give this friend of his clarity on the things that he was taught. He wanted Theophilus, who could have been a high up ranking Roman soldier, someone, not everyone had the word, the, the title excellently, excellent before their names. All right. Are you with me? So Theophilus could have been uh, a high-ranking official of some sort, 
but he was either a new believer to the faith or someone struggling in his faith, a friend of Luke, and Luke wanted to give him clarity. Clarity about Jesus. Clarity about the gospel. Clarity about what God was doing in the world through his son, Jesus Christ. And so as Luke has this desire to bring clarity, we see in these first couple of verses, three reasons why we can take Christianity to be true. And when I see these, I was like, you know, mesmerized, like, wow, it's right here. Three reasons why we can take Christianity to be true. Can I give those to you? All right. First, it is a biblical faith. It is a biblical faith. He says in verse one, and as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that has been have been accomplished among us. And if you write in your Bible, which is okay to do, I would underline the phrase accomplished. Because Luke is saying something really important here. Don't miss this. When Luke says that these things have been accomplished, he is saying that there is a story. There is a drama going on. And the whole Old Testament was God making a promise. And the whole New Testament is showing how that promise was fulfilled. Did you catch that? Old Testament, God made a promise that he would bring redemption. And we get the story of that in the Old Testament. And now in the New Testament, we see how that promise has been fulfilled, principally through Jesus Christ, God's son. This is a biblical story. It started in Genesis, creation, and it comes all the way here into the life and work and teaching of Jesus. And so he's saying you can believe this because this is a biblical faith started in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New Testament. Now, someone could take a step back and say, hey, you're telling me that Christianity is true because Christianity says it's true. Isn't that kind of like circular reason? And if you're thinking along those lines, one could say that. But Luke doesn't stop there. It's not only a faith that has been put forth by the biblical narrative and the biblical text. Secondly, this is a historical faith. This is a historical faith. Look at what he says in verse two. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. Again, if you're writing your Bible, this might be a good place to underline as well. There were eyewitnesses. He calls them ministers of the word who delivered. That word means like handed over, handed over with like caution, right? With, with importance, handed over with uh, care. It wasn't just given, it was passed down. It was entrusted as a synonym for that word. They entrusted us this message. The eyewitnesses did. And this is so, so important that Luke went and talked to the people who were actually there. It's very apparent that maybe he talked with the mother of Jesus, Mary. We get a long uh, story of the birth of Jesus. We get in in, uh, details into how Mary encountered the angels, the prayer she prayed. And so Luke went and talked 
to the witnesses. This is super, super important. Luke highlights the fact that this, um, this work of God wasn't done in a vacuum. There were people there. There were people there who could have said, no, that this didn't happen. And there were people there who could affirm it. And as he went and as he talked with people, people affirmed, yes, Jesus really did live. Jesus really did walk this earth. Jesus really did die on the cross. He got the historical testimony from the witnesses. Now, this makes sense because if nowadays in a court of law, if, if a jury or a judge wants to convict the, someone of a crime, what's one of the primary ways in which they do that? Witnesses, right? So we get that even modernly. We get that. And this is what we have here. Luke checked the facts. He checked with the people. But thirdly, this is a verifiable. faith can be verified. Let's put it that way. Verse three, he says, it seemed good to me also after uh, following these things closely. Notice that word closely for some time. So he was, he was looking at the details. He spent the season looking at the details and then he put it together. Luke did something of what we would modernly call investigative journalism. You know what that is? I didn't at first. I had to look it up. But investigative journalism is this, this search into the details, carefully looking and even looking for discrepancies, which would discount the narrative. Luke was very intentional to look at the details. And what he found is what he presents here in this gospel. It's amazing. It's amazing. And again, I want to take a quick step aside and give you a pastoral, uh, something from my heart, a pastoral uh, tool for you, right? To put in your tool belt. If you come across someone who denies this book and says that this is not the word of God, I want to give you a very brief and succinct argument for believing that this is the word of God, okay? I want you to stay with me. This is important. I want to make sure you all have this, right? And so if we were to start by saying that this is not the word of God, but this is a historical, reliable document, what am I saying? That this is a work from history, and the authors who wrote this book 
They had integrity. They were not seeking to deceive people. And primarily, we can make this argument from the Gospel of Luke. Luke is considered throughout history to be a historian. He's on the same page with other historians like Josephus, which is an important name that you should know, who wrote history. He wasn't a believer, but he wrote about Jesus. But this, let's say this is just an ancient, historical, reliable document. Let's just say it that It's not the word of God. You don't have to surrender your life to it. But this is a reliable document that actually tells us what happened. Okay? Let's start there. If we start there, we encounter the person of Jesus. And when you encounter Jesus, it's amazing. Come on, somebody. You encounter Jesus, it's amazing. He's loving on people. He's healing people. He's rising people from the dead. He's teaching with authority. He's telling the storm to be quiet. Like, you meet this guy, there's no one like him, right? And you can only side in one of three places in considering Jesus. This person is either crazy, talked about being God, the way, the truth, and the life. So he's either crazy, right? Are you with me? He's lying and he knows he's lying or he is the Lord. That's the only three options you have for Jesus. Some people want to put Jesus in this category. He was a nice, noble teacher, but he wasn't, you know, son of God. And I'm afraid that Jesus doesn't give you that option. If Jesus wasn't Lord and he said he was, he's either crazy or he was lying. So you, you don't have much wiggle room with this, with this person, Jesus Christ. Who is he? Is he the Lord? Is he crazy or is he a liar? And if you encountering the person of Jesus in this ancient, reliable, historical document and say, you know what? Jesus is who he says he is, right? He is who he says he is. Then the question is, what did Jesus believe about the scriptures? And there's an overwhelming testimony that Jesus believed this, the scriptures to be the word of God. And so therefore, now, I believe that this is the word of God because Jesus says it's the word of God. And Jesus got up from the grave, and this records that. He is the Lord. And so that's just a small apologetic. It's not the only apologetic, but it's a small apologetic when people deny that this is the word of God. Hey, this book presents Jesus to me, the historical Jesus, the same Jesus that secular historians wrote about, right? Josephus. It presents me Jesus. When I encounter Jesus... I see that this man is unique. This unique. It's no one like him. And this book tells me that he died and rose from the grave. And I believe that he is the Lord. And what does the Lord believe about the scriptures? He believes that they are the very word of God. Thus, I believe that this is the very word of God. Amen? Amen. All right. You should have assurance at the end of this gospel. You should have assurance about God's love, about God's goodness, about Jesus, about how one is saved. You should have incredible assurance at the end of this gospel. But secondly, let me come to my second point, and I'll go through this much quicker. Don't worry. How does Luke order this gospel? How does he write it? How does he actually compile it together? Well, there is a chronological order. 
meaning he kind of moves from the beginning of Jesus's life to the end of Jesus's life. And let me kind of give you four big bones in which Luke compiles this gospel. In chapter one and two, we have the introduction of Jesus, right? We have the introduction of Jesus. We're told about the birth of Jesus and his young life, what happened to him even as a teenager. That's in chapter one and chapter two. In chapter three through nine, we have Jesus and his public ministry. So Jesus' ministry is being launched and he begins to teach. So we have Jesus and his public ministry. And that goes on from chapter three to chapter nine. And chapter 10 through chapter 19 is Jesus's journey to Jerusalem. Jesus's journey to Jerusalem. And Luke is intentionally writing about Jesus's journey to Jerusalem. And he's teaching and encountering people on the way. And so he spends nine chapters showing how Jesus is marching toward to Jerusalem. We know what happens when he gets there. He has made enemies on the way. And when he gets to Jerusalem, the leaders have him crucified. Fourthly, we see Jesus' final week. Jesus' final week. That's in chapters 20 to 24. So in some way, this gospel is chronological. It is not strictly chronological. At times, Luke adds content for theological purposes or illustration purposes. And so it's not strictly chronological, but there is a chronological flow to this gospel. Are you with me? Secondly, there's a, a geographic order to the gospel. Chapter one through nine, he starts in, in Galilee. Chapter nine to 19, he's traveling to Jerusalem. And chapter 19 to 24, he's in Jerusalem. But I, I seen this and I thought this was interesting as well. There's, in some sense, a theological order to the Gospel of Luke. And very early on, he's presenting Jesus as prophet, one who teaches the very word of God. And there's a point where people are hearing Jesus teach and they're like, man, who is this guy? No one has ever taught like this with such authority. So he puts forth Jesus as the prophet, the true prophet, the great prophet of God. In chapter seven and nine, he put forth Jesus as the great priest, the great high priest, the one in which all other priests only mimic the ministry. And I, I, catch this. In the Old Testament, when someone was unclean, they were ordered or when they thought they were thought to be unclean, they would have to go before the priests and the priests would kind of examine them. And if they were unclean or if they had something going on, the priest would give them a time of like quarantine of you can't go to the temple. You can't go to worship. You're unclean. Spend 60 days here, you know, two weeks here. And you can't go to the temple. Well, that's not the high priest. or that's not how you see the world functioning with Jesus. You see Jesus encountering people who would be considered unclean and he's cleaning them. He's bringing the kingdom of God to them and he's cleansing them, healing them, forgiving them so that they can worship God. It's a beautiful picture, a beautiful picture. Jesus is the great priest of God. And thirdly, again, to this theological order, he presents Jesus as king. 
Jesus as king. And this becomes very clear from chapter 20 going forward that Jesus is king and he will reign. And crucifixion is part of the plan. It's not the destruction of the king. It's the fulfillment of the king's plan, which is, again, so interesting, right? Now, before I go to my third point, just let's take a step back, okay? Are you still with me? Let's take a step back. What? What's the big deal if this is a true narrative? Like, I want to answer the question of, so what? If, Jesus, if, if Luke puts forth a clear picture of Jesus and his work and his teaching, so what? Like, what does that mean practically for us? I want to answer that. All right. Are you with me? If this is a real narrative of Jesus being set forth for us, we are really encountering the savior of the world. We're encountering one who embraces Gentiles and Samaritans, one who honors women in a culture that dishonored women, one who welcomes children into his midst, one who touches the leopard, one who would go to the cross and die for sinners. We encounter the savior of the world. And I don't know about you, but for me, man, this is amazing that through this gospel, we encounter Christ. We encounter him and he calls us to turn from our sin and follow him. And that invitation that Jesus gives to people all throughout this gospel is the invitation he gives us. Turn from your sin, turn from yourself and follow me, follow me. Therefore, now my last point. What posture should we have as we go through this gospel? What posture should we have? What should be our heart posture week after week as we come to hear God through Luke? What should be our posture? I have four things I want you to take into consideration. Number one, we should have a sincere posture. Let's take this serious. We spent some, a lot of time, probably more time than necessary, making the argument that this is God's word. And so when we come and hear from God through Luke, we are hearing the word of God. Let's take it serious. Let's take it serious. You all have an appointment with God every Sunday and he wants to speak to you. Amen. Amen. Secondly. Let's encounter Jesus afresh. And I say that knowing that some of you have been following Jesus for some time, right? This is an opportunity to encounter Jesus, your Savior, afresh. So come with fresh eyes as we go through this gospel. Number three, this might be, for some of you, uh, an opportunity to encounter Jesus the first time, right? Like you are really going to encounter Jesus Christ through this study. He's going to encounter you. You are going to encounter him. Amen. Yeah. Lastly, embrace the two layers of gratitude. 
I listened through the whole gospel according to Luke this week. And there was this dynamic that showed up once and twice and it made me think about it. Our gratitude is not only for the things that we have, right? Think about God's blessing to us. Our gratitude is also or should be rooted in the things that we are not receiving, but we deserve. You catch that? Like when sinners disobey God, they deserve wrath and judgment. That's what God says. But instead of wrath and judgment, we get an extended hand of grace. And he not only pulls us up out of our sin, he then pulls us on this journey of following him and growing and being used by him. And that's the gratitude that we seem to think about, right? It's our life in Christ, the life now in Christ. But I think this, this gospel will also remind us of the things we are not getting that we deserve, right? All right? I'm excited and I pray that as we go through this gospel, God will help us to see Jesus clearly, to follow him fully. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Uh, thank you for your word and thank you for um, this journey that we prepare to embark on. I know that uh, we will see our Lord and Savior. I know we will be challenged by him. I know we will be motivated to share him. I know we will encounter him in ways in which will not align with our worldview at times. Jesus really does bring disruption to a life. And God, I pray that as that happens, we will realize that he's king and he's Lord. And we should follow him. And as we do that, we enter into, we experience abundant life. So let this journey be one that is fruitful and one that gives you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.